Hey everyone, it's your host of See Jurassic Right, Stephen Ray Morris here, just dropping in to say, I hope you've been enjoying all the new episodes in 2023 and 2024 so far. There are new interviews with filmmakers, musicians, scientists, the screenwriter of Land Before Time, audio essays about the rich history of the Jurassic Park and Jurassic World franchise, and all the news about the upcoming animated show Jurassic World Chaos Theory and the as-of-yet untitled Jurassic World sequel coming next summer. I really need your help supporting the show right now, and you can do that by leaving a tip and or giving a monthly follow on Patreon, patreon.com slash There are $1 and $5 tiers, but more is coming. Sharing the show, giving five-star reviews in Apple Podcasts, and liking and commenting on social, at Stephen Ray Morris on Instagram and Twitter, goes a long way to help boosting the show's visibility again online in this new era. I'm an independent podcaster and your support is so important and means the world to me in keeping this podcast running. Link to the Patreon is in the show notes. Hold on to your butts. Thank you. And now on to the show. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. One, two, three. Filled with awe and fright See Jurassic right Bathed in ember light See Jurassic right See Jurassic right Right, right See Jurassic right Right, right See Jurassic right Right, right See Jurassic right See Jurassic right See Jurassic Park We're here at See Jurassic right I'm super excited to chat with my guest because she does something that's super cool. And as somebody who's a fan of Jurassic Park, one of our favorite characters in that movie does this same job. And I'm just so glad to, I'm so excited to learn more about it. She is a paleobotanist and ecologist. It's Aviwe Matawane. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Oh, I'm so excited. It's, I think it was the the Common Descent podcast, which is a natural, it's, you know, paleontology and stuff yeah. like that. But they t- yeah. they talked about how, like, it's like we don't appreciate plants as much, but they are just as important, just as cool, just as exciting as any dinosaurs or any past creatures. In your own words, what what is a paleobotanist and what do you do? Uh, so paleobotany is the study of ancient plants. So these can be extinct ancient plants or it can be... Um, Plants that have, uh, I mean, uh, plants from uh, a long time ago that still have uh, living relatives. 
So those who are lucky enough to have those living relatives uh, find it a bit more easier than those who actually have work on extinct uh, plants that uh, have no comparison, you know. So that's what paleobotany is. And for me, I feel like paleobotany is a very important uh, field. But I think it's been undermined quite a lot um, by people. And uh, I mean, a lot of paleobotanists, I mean, I'm still new in the paleobotany field, but I have people who I see, like even on social media, who who I've read about and whose uh, papers I've read. And I'm like, wow, you know, there's a whole lot more than what people actually assume just because they don't have big teeth and uh you know a big huge creatures well there were some of them but not creatures and plants uh it was uh they're not seen as uh an exciting science but it's it's an amazing science that uh, needs a lot of detective work and it's a joy to work in uh, i'm very lucky to be spending some time with my mom up in oregon where we're surrounded by beautiful trees and i'm just like to me it's just like look at a tree around you that's what it like that that's what this is it's so exciting and cool and beautiful it is i think that's funny that i and again just again to my ignorance of the paleobotany field the idea that there is a difference between the ones that are completely extinct versus ones that maybe still have some surviving relatives mm. that that to me is so fascinating I, I love the idea that there's like oh well you get to at least you have living ones to help yeah <laughs> as simple as you know it's not cutting stone as they say no this is uh, easy and stuff but at least you know they have a comparison whereas uh, with some of us you still need to do the reconstruction you need to you know put in a whole lot of effort and uh, I'm not in no way saying that we have it more hot like harder than everyone else but it's just the situation we in and um, it's it's great though it is when you finally find the missing pieces and you put everything together was this something you always wanted to to be since you were a kid or like how did you discover paleobotany and how was that how did you go from being a kid did you always like plants as a kid uh when i was young um my grandfather is a self-taught botanist so um he used to take me into the forest and show me plants uh, show me medicinal plants which ones uh, were used for what. And so I had that background. But um, being a village girl, you know, from a rural area, I didn't really know that there was such a career option um, as botany in varsity. And uh, when I got to varsity, that's when um, my knowledge expanded and I could see all these career opportunities. So um, it all started actually during my honors year when I was offered a bursary by uh, Professor Nigel Barker at Rhodes University to come and do a project with him in systematics. So um, he had a variety of options for me and I decided choosing a project in forest biodiversity and ecology. And um, I remember looking around in the forest and I was like, every single time I'd I'd visit a forest and I'd think to myself, how did we get here, you know? How did 
uh, plants get here? Why, why is this environment the way it is and not in other places, you know? So I started asking myself all these questions and then for my masters, I also continued with the same project, but at, but at a much uh, larger scope and, um, and interest. So when I was doing my final year uh, in my masters, it was the writing up process so that was oh. really horrible for me and i found it really difficult to concentrate and just do the writing so um but i wanted i wanted to do something uh, new so what i did was i started mentoring first years and line supervisor was in the geology department and uh, i'd report to him every every month so the first month that I actually went to his office in the geology department, I was waiting outside. He was still finishing off a meeting with one of his uh, his students. And as I waited outside, I looked at a cabinet outside his office and it was filled with fossils. And I was like, wow, what are these, you know? And, and then upon closer inspection, I saw there was a whole variety of different uh, specimens that were displayed in the cabinet and some I could identify, some I could not. And so I went, I mean, after we had our meeting, I indicated that I actually have an interest in the evolution of plants and stuff and he referred me to uh his good friend uh dr rose previk at the albany museum so dr rose previk ended up uh, taking me under her wing she invited me to her field trips and uh it all started there i saw <sighs> you know she was so passionate about her work she's brilliant like she's oh she's amazing i know she's my supervisor but <laughs> she's just brilliant and uh she taught me a whole lot about the field and i'm still learning you know i'm learning from everyone and i'm learning from her and so it all started there so paleobotany was not a profession that i had chosen but um like at a young at a young age but it just organically you know transitioned from my masters to a phd in paleobotany so that's that's the journey in the story Wow. That's so interesting. I, I, It's funny, I think maybe as somebody who has primarily been interested in, you know, and especially, you know, so many, so many people grow up dinosaur kids. I almost yeah. like take for granted that it's not like people start off into birds and then they're like, you know, get into dinosaurs. It's like yeah. dinosaurs are almost like their separate thing. But yeah. I kind of love that idea of like, you see these living plants. And I think it was also on the the Common Descent podcast as well. It's like, you know, too often we draw the backgrounds in these paleo uh, art scenes, you know, as this static mm. thing, but it's like, no, yeah. like plants are just as alive as. What's so frustrating about that is the fact that sometimes they get the the environment so wrong just because you have <laughs> plants, they doesn't mean that they representative of the plants of that time, you know? So we find like, particularly in the older literature, it's um, all the reconstructions are just not correct enough. You know, they're not, they're not precise. I, I feel like it's one of those things where I'm sure when you're watching something that's set during, you know, the prehistoric, you know, either dinosaurs or even Cenozoic or something like that, you're yeah. probably like, I'm sure that it's probably a thing where you get asked like, it's like, no, not everything was a jungle back then, you know? Yes. <laughs> not everything was birds. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. And also, uh, there's, there's this uh, assumption that 
since uh, you're a paleobotanist, you need to know everything, you know. And I keep telling people that I don't know everything. And a whole lot of people, also other paleobotanists, don't know everything. So it's quite a difficult thing. It's the same as saying, okay, so you study plants. Do you know this plant, you know? And, <laughs> and it's, I love it when people do it uh, on social media, you know, because at the same time, I'm learning because it's sort of like an investigating uh, process where you're trying to find and identify something for someone. And at the same time, you're learning new things as you're actually searching for the information. So and it wow. has to connect you to other people who who are specializing in all of these things. And now you know, oh, okay, if I need help with so-and-so, I know I can refer this to this person. So, and oh, that's cool. okay to say you don't know something instead of trying to be an expert in everything. Oh, for sure. I, you know, that makes me wanted to jump ahead just to one of the later questions, but mm -hmm. I, I love how you describe yourself as a plant detective. And so... Yeah. I guess when you're first looking at a fossil plant, it's like, what are the questions that are going through your head? Like what, like, what is the, do you see a story unraveling or is it more of just trying to like get the facts? Well, at first it was quite difficult. You know, I was more of, oh, okay, I need to get this done, you know, but now like when you look at the leaves, the first thing is you see the shape, you know, and then obviously the, the sediment in which it's uh, preserved on, the texture, you look at taphonomy, why are certain things preserved and the other things are not preserved? You know, uh, what was the environment during that time? Why are they this shape? Why are the meshes are so small? Uh, what information can the cuticle uh, tell us if there is a cuticle? So there's a whole lot of things that you ask when you are looking at plants, instead of just only identifying um, what the type of plant, uh, what type of plant it is, but also mm. at the same time, you see all these plant interaction, uh, animal-plant interaction um, records on the plants themselves, like in the form of damage, where you can see when ancient plant had chewed on the leaf and uh, laid its eggs and left marks on the on the leaf margin or on the actual blade. So there's a whole lot of stories that can be taken out of just looking at um, the, the ancient plants that we're actually working on. Wow, that's so cool. That like, it's always funny when like, you know, fossils are found in, in sort of a, in, in a mid action. I, like to me in my head, I'm like, that would be so fascinating to find like a like a plant that's like in the middle of like, I'll, you know, like being chewed mm. on. You know, I would, I would love to just one day find something like that. You know, uh, I remember when we were in the field, I think it was two years ago and uh, it was a new site that my supervisor had found. And I remember excavating in one of the layers and I found what looked like insects chewing on seeds you know there were seeds or whatever and um it was the way that they were orientated and everything and at first i thought that's what it was <laughs> and uh because the team is full of um different people who do uh who specialize in different fields um we actually sent a picture 
of the specimen to our colleague in France, Professor Andre Nell. And um, he, like, it, it, it's sort of like, we really don't know what's going on there, really. But uh, it just shows that whatever happened was, it was a quick burial and they died in... <laughs> They died, you know, suddenly, and it was yeah. So it's it's it, it's quite difficult. I mean, there's a whole lot that people get away with, particularly in paleo sciences, trying to explain things, and also with reconstructions. But um, sometimes I think you need to just be very careful about what you say and what you uh, the assumptions that you make when it comes to this to the field because uh, it could have like long-term implications on um, on the work that's done and also uh, how people understand um, the evolution of plants. Oh, interesting. That, I mean, that makes me think, because one of the questions I had was like, I, you know, my day job as a podcast engineer, it's like, I don't have to fix other people's podcasts or old mm. podcasts. I don't have to, I don't have to go back and change anything but it seems like scientists, it's like you're not, you're not only working to discover new things, but it almost seems like you have to contend with the the information that's been laid down in the past. Like, how, how do you balance that? Yeah, I think a lot of um, you have to make sure that you look at the old literature. I think a lot of people actually exclude a lot of the old literature, whereas most of these things have been tackled, but they weren't as popular during that time. Uh, that's where literature reviews are actually very important uh, when you're actually writing a paper or um, you're doing your thesis. Uh, so you look at what everyone has done and you can see where you can fill in the gaps or what you can improve and if you're finding the same things that the people were finding during that time. I, I wanted to go back to because as I mentioned up top, Jurassic Park features a paleobotanist, but are there paleobotanists? Yeah, I know you've mentioned a couple already, but are there paleobotanists in real life that have been an inspiration or role models to you? Oh, definitely. Like, um, there's one other, besides my supervisor, there is Barry, who is our colleague uh, from South America. And she inspires me because she has worked really hard to be where she is. I mean, she has overcome a lot of adversity. She's a good scientist, a brilliant one, in fact. And uh, she's publishing and discovering new things almost all the time. And she has inspired me to persevere, even though, you know, uh, I think I, I have it bad. She's like, no, get this thesis done, Avi, and then we can have more good things to do, you know, to look forward to and work on because we know you're brilliant and you can do all of this and uh, we uh, we can publish more papers and stuff. She's more of a motivator, a mentor and um, basically an all-round good person and she's lovely, you know, she's very helpful and I really look up to her. She's brilliant. Well, and that makes me think the Ologies podcast I work on, Ali Ward typically you know, ask uh, scientists what things that they don't like about their work. And it seems like a common thread is kind of like, I just want to do the thing that I'm meant to do, you know, and, and it's yeah. almost like pa paperwork and, you know, just all the, the that kind of comes with yeah. trying to get to do your work and everything. It seems like it, it seems like the, the advice people have given is just to kind of like 
really focus on what you love in a sense it really like it helps when you actually focus on what you love what you're passionate about i think the one thing that uh we as post uh, grads actually fail at is choosing research projects that actually speak to us most of the time we actually uh, search for funding which project has higher funding, which uh, advisor is willing to offer me this, you know, and stuff. And then you find that you actually fail in those labs or you fail in that uh, particular research. Whereas, I mean, if you do something that you're passionate about, it doesn't matter if you're struggling or whatever, you're willing to persevere and to push on to make sure that you are done with it, you know. So that it's good mm-hmm. and um, you make a name for yourself, you know, a lot. I know like a lot of people are like, no, we want job security and everything, um, you know, but I think it's different in different areas. For example, for me, my family was like, so where are you going to work? You know, <laughs> <laughs> is there a job out there for you? You know, afterwards, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so what is it? I mean, why don't you do medicine? And I'm like, I've never ever wanted to become a medical profession, <laughs> ever, 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 ever. So um, it's at the same time, as much as it's it's a worry for my parents and uh, my family, it's uh, it's not really a worry for me because I think I will make you know things work for me whichever way possible you know i'll i don't know <laughs> but um it'll work out. i have hope <laughs> and, well yeah you know i've already been thinking about a whole lot of things that i can do with my life instead of actually just pursuing academia so uh i'm not i'm not the type of person that's necessarily looking for a government job or looking for a job in uh in academia i'm more of an entrepreneur and also a mm communicator so uh using my different skills and stuff i'm sure i could you know come up with a whole lot of things that be able to support me in the future <laughs> even though i had to stay with my mom for like two years <laughs> <laughs> well my family enjoys it when you're with them you know it's it's yeah sometimes that time is few and far between when you become an adult but i i think to your point it's it's the kind of thing where i i, I have a father who's like you know, anytime he sees like, oh, why don't you start a YouTube channel and do this? Mm. It's like, but I wouldn't be good at that because that's not what I'm passionate about. And, Mm. and I think that there's something to be said about that idea of, uh, like you're saying, it's like this passion is what drives you to be able to succeed in a way that you couldn't, if you didn't care about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I found that I actually, I found my voice and I found myself in the project that I'm doing. I wouldn't, I don't think I would be here being interviewed by you, talking to you, you know, if I was doing something else. I don't think I didn't have the confidence back then to actually be who I am. Now I am who I am because, I mean, I see it in the way that I work. I see it, you know, through everything that I go through. And uh, I feel like it's actually molded me into a much better person than um, I was before. That's really beautiful. I, I I totally subscribe to that. I think that was that's such a wonderful way to to put it. it. And you know, it's the thing. It's like people. I think growing up, when you look, you know, we look at careers in such a like like a black and white or like kind of a practical way, where it's like mm. doctor, you know, firefighter, yeah. scientist, like and such yeah. these generic things. But it's so cool to hear that. And I mean, and maybe you can speak more to this, but just that 
you know, that, that, that maybe a career as a paleobotanist isn't necessarily in academia, that there's more to a job than just like the big capital, like, you know, the, the, in all caps, paleobotanist (laughs) or scientist or something. You know, the one thing that they two things actually three, let me say three, (laughs) I wish uh, were actually mandatory for everyone to do um, in the undergrad. One, psychology. Second is finance. And then the third is learning about business models and um, being an entrepreneur. I think uh, those are actually very important, particularly psychology when you're dealing with people. Finance, how to actually budget and to save up, you know. And uh, in terms of being an entrepreneur and business, how to actually uh, create your own businesses, you know, instead of being a dependent what can you come up with? You know, it uh, taps into your creativity and everything. So um, I think there's so many things that are life skills that we need besides the core modules that we actually do in the sciences themselves. And uh, I mean, most scientists can't even tell you what they're doing in simple words. Like they can't even communicate the science, you know, and there's this whole thing that, no, it's a waste of time. But how is it a waste of time if you want people to actually come and do the work that you're doing? How is it a waste of time if you're trying to actually have progress in the field, uh, but you're not willing to actually talk about it? Uh, that's so interesting. Well, and that brings me to my, because I discovered you through Twitter. It's been such a joy to, over the last year or so, I've been just following all these amazing scientists and sort of discovering science Twitter and find that lizard and guess the skull, mm. and all, you know, all these wonderful things. And my, my question is like, do you, for you as a scientist, like, does it actually help in your work in any way? Or is it more of a tool for science communication? For me, it's both. So by getting people to know and understand what it is that I do, I'm hoping to reach a broader audience so people are interested in knowing. I mean, I'm sure some people didn't know that there was something called the softness um, before uh, actually um, following me on Twitter. And uh, it's, it's, it's also trying to draw people in to be interested in the research and hopefully maybe even join the lab and uh, something with us, you know, because I mean, there's funding, the supervisor has been um, advertising for a postdoc because I mean, in our lab, we all do different things. So because the much broader project is to actually do a reconstruction of uh, food webs in the Permian. So uh, each person has uh, a different speciality. My supervisor is also a plant person, but she's mostly fructifications and she also does a lot of plant damage. You know what? She knows a lot of things, you know. So um, I'm trying to get like awareness about paleobotany in South Africa. I mean, there's only so much that she can do and hope (laughs) that people can actually, you know, uh, take an interest in it. And also in terms of my writing as well, you know, uh, sometimes, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's certain times where I have like a particular theme. So if there's a chapter that I'm actually writing on, right, and I'm, and I'm struggling with, I'd rather do it simply on Twitter and try and explain it in a much uh, simpler way and then see what questions arise from there from people. Ooh. 
actually incorporate in what I'm writing and also discuss, you know. So that's like one of the tricks and trades that I've obtained <laughs> from from the science communication on Twitter. In in my head, I'm like, it's it's that thing of like, you know, to me, you know, in that kind of romanticization of scientists, it's like you guys should be you know, off doing your research and doing your work. Mm. And, and we're in a stage where everyone kind of has to advocate for themselves in a way. And yeah, but it's, it's nice to know that there is some good use of, of, you know, engaging and, and spending time uh, on that space. Mm. I really honest. Oh, I love teaching. Um, I think um, that's like one of my biggest passions because I'm not like most uh, lecturers where, you know, like the old uh, type where it was, I'm reading from the slides, I'm doing this, you know, like more of a robot <laughs> situation. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but I engage more with the students. I really love it because I learn a lot from them. And um, the moment I lose my audience, I know uh, there's something wrong that I'm doing or there's uh, something that I can actually improve on. So, um, it's, 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 so it really is a trade, a trade off. Huh. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes me think like, it, it, it's almost like the thing where it's like, somebody will ask me a very simple question about podcasting, for example. And it's like, wait, I don't even know what that is. Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll, like you said, you know, the, 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 the danger so much of is, knowing not knowing what we don't know and yeah. maybe those kind of things help us to figure that out and to expand mm. our our uh, knowledge base i guess yeah for example sometimes if i even start a chapter i'd rather do it uh like um a, a trade on on twitter you know yeah. just to see people actually understand what i'm saying and then i can get into like a more scientific writing scenario when i'm actually um back in my like in my play at my place and i'm and i'm writing it's been a good experiment for me it's been working <laughs> that's so cool there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss that's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care plush care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey they can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you, are you somebody that has a lot of plants? Are you like surrounded by plants right now? Oh my goodness. Can I just tell you how horrible I am? <laughs> Like the one thing that I have at the moment is a coriander herb. And if that is struggling, <laughs> I don't know what type of botanist I am, but I don't have green fingers like everyone else. You know? <laughs> You're studying fossils. You know? they're, they're not alive right now. Who cares about the live ones? Like my grandfather, my grandfather's brilliant at, you know, at planting even vegetables and stuff. Nothing grows. 
I don't, I don't know. Like, I know what I'm doing wrong, but at the same time, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I think you, you need to be have a special gift when it comes to planting. I think that's why also I never chose a botany project where I would have to actually plant or grow something because there would, I would, I would still be doing my masters. I think <laughs> if I had to grow something because that's that's just not my speciality. But where I stay, there's a lot of forest, and I also have a garden where I stay, so that's um that helps. But it's oh, aimed nice. by a company outside, not by me. <laughs> so, uh, but when I'm back home um, on the farm, I'm surrounded by, you know, by plants everywhere. Oh, nice. I mean, I've just, again, I mean, looking out the window right now and I'm looking at, a, I guess, a pine tree. Mm. Pine cones. But, <laughs> but I'm just like. <laughs> I, I get it's that strange thing of like I'm able to you know take care of a cat, but for some reason, yeah. my problem is I water plants too much. And uh, stop! You're drowning me. You yeah, know? like I'm, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I just care too much. <laughs> I think I think that's also one of my problems, and also underwatering. And <laughs> you know, my, the two things that I can't do is gardening, and my fish don't survive. So. Those two things are I'm just horrible at, you know. So it's yeah, I was not gifted in those departments. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about getting an aquarium, but I think I'm like you, where I'm like, oh god, can I face the, can I face that if I if I screw it up, you know? Exactly, because I mean, like the first couple of fish that I had, I overfed. They died, you know. Oh, <laughs> you can overfeed second- them. Yes, I had two goldfish. Oh. Apparently, you, you, need, you, you just need to give them just a few, you know, um, things like food for, you know, a couple of days or you can skip a day. And I don't know that. And yeah, it's it's horrible. What are, I mean, I, I know you're working on, it's pronounced Glossopteris. Yeah. That correct? Yeah. I guess, what are some of your, your favorite fossil plants? Do you have? Are a lot of your favorites ones that have living analogs today, or are you primarily, you know, interested in the the ones that aren't around today? I'm interested in everything. Like, um, uh, my favorite, okay, my favorite at the moment would be Squamela. It's also a part of the Glossopterdales. It is one of the the fertile structures of of Glossopters. And uh, it comes in a form of a cone, and it's only been found in Australia and and Antarctica. So um, oh, wow, we have we have mats and mats and mats of it. I think we have the biggest collection in the world, and wow. uh, it is and it's the first time that it's ever found in Africa. And we have lots of it. We're busy writing a paper. It's been oh, it's been horrible. Because we still can't get a degree about uh, we submitted the first paper and uh, it was rejected and um, we had to revise it and resubmit and but now we just are not are not in you know we're debating about what to actually do should we do like a descriptive paper uh, on it or should we combine it with something else so that we get a bigger paper so we still have that. And it's my favorite at the moment, even though it's giving me, you know, a sleepless night and <laughs> and stuff. I love orchids, and my favorite tree of big trees. I just think I think there's just 
something about fig trees, like the the roots, the leaves, the fruit. You know, there's a a whole lot that I love about fig trees, and yeah, like I'm not I'm not too specific, but for a fossil, obviously, glossopteris. Anything that has to do with glossopteris just fascinates me. What is it? I, and I, I'm sure you get this all the time of somebody describing plants that you like as ferns, because that's my common perception of what the plants were back then. But what does Glossopteris look like? So Glossopteris, okay, here's the thing. A lot of uh, the original description of Glossopteris, so Glossopteris means tank-shaped fern in Greek. Okay, Ooh. And at first it was thought to be a fern. So if you look at, if you Google online, a lot of people still um, keep uh, keep the grouping in uh, as part of ferns. But it was not a fern. It was a gymnosperm that um, that survived 299 to 252 million years ago. And it's, it's actually a conifer. That's part of the conifer oh. yeah, family. And so there's, there's just like a whole debate about it. And a lot of people do not believe it's a conifer. So it's, it, it's actually a cause of controversy and wow. not too much agreement on it. Because, I mean, with Glossopteris, you can find a whole lot of leaves, you know, but the fertile structures are so rare. So we, um, it's, it's, it's actually difficult for people to put and piece together um, like the whole component of the tree and the whole... Um, or basically the whole reconstruction of the plant. So it was, uh, some people say it were, uh, Glossopteris was, I like, came in the form of a, like a shrub, uh, but there's also evidence uh, of it being massive trees. Oh, wow. Um, three stories high. So it was, yeah, it was, it, it came in different forms, apparently. So, but we definitely know that it was a huge plant. Oh, cool. Uh, with dinosaur fossils, it's like, like the idea of getting part of a plant and then being ha- having to sort of think about what the rest of it looks like. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I see a pine cone and I'm like, all right, now imagine what the tree attached to it looks like. Yeah. Oh, I don't yeah. know. Like, mm-hmm. how would I? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like, there's been um, a whole lot of reconstructions that have been done in previous years, but a whole, uh, Lots of researchers agree that it probably looked like a mangrove tree. I don't know if you know mangroves. I actually got to see some. I went to a mangrove forest. Yes. Yeah. Florida in Florida, actually, over the holidays Mm. this year. Okay, so uh, it's basically so. So it's been agreed that they actually look like um, mangrove forest. That's where uh, the like. That's how the trees looked like. Um, oh, wow. in terms of reconstruction and stuff that's what uh, the template a lot of people use because even the roots uh, have these air pockets so just like um, mangroves uh, mangrove trees so it was it was a very massive tree and um, yeah there's there's just so much about Glossopteris that we still don't know, and there's still there's a lot that we know, but there's also still a lot that we still need to fill in. I'm just mostly tackling the leaves that no one wants to, <laughs> to touch. And yeah. um, well, I mean, it's it's interesting into the 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 point we were talking about earlier of this idea of like the importance of 
looking backwards at or mm-hmm. looking looking back at, at like which I'm sure it's like you're having like having to look at all these different reconstructions. It's got to be challenging, I imagine, of like okay, no, how does this play into what I'm doing? Yeah, it is, and um, it's quite interesting the interpretation that a lot of people have come with, come up with, you know. But at the same time, when you read the papers, you do understand the view. And um, I think a lot of things have to do uh, with preservation, how things are preserved. Like, for example, in South Africa, most of our um, most of our preceptors plant fossils are impressions or, or, or compressions. Uh, we have uh, fossilized wood, but uh, it's mostly in uh, the, the leaves are mostly and the fructifications are mostly impressions or compressions. And then you go to places like Antarctica where you find them in, like um, which are preliminarized and uh, it's it's a different uh, case and their reconstructions are different compared to what we are also reconstructing. So you might find that the same, let's say, a fertile structure you're reconstructing in a form of impression is totally different from the fertile structure, the same fertile structure they're reconstructing in this different pres- preservation form. Wow. I mean, that didn't even really... It's like all this, you know, millions of years pushing down on these plants. And Mm. I guess it does have an effect on the plant, but I guess that affects the way that you're reconstructing it, I imagine. Yeah, it does. I mean, it also depends on even with reconstructions, particularly like cones and stuff. You don't know if they it depends which way they are preserved. uh, And also also particularly with with impressions or compressions. You need both sides, so you need the counterpart. They need the part and the counterpart to tell a different, like the the whole story. Whereas um, in a preliminarized sediment, it's different because you have the whole. Most of the time, you have the whole structure, but you do like thin sections in order to see and trying to like the complete reconstruction. So oh. it's yeah. So, so it's quite it's quite difficult because there's a lot there's a lot that. The different researchers do not agree upon, and it makes life really difficult. Um, instead of actually coming together and working together on this and saying, "Okay, this is what I'm seeing, and this is what we're seeing," so where's the middle ground? What can we do? You know, um, we need a whole lot of that in botany. Instead of having all these camps of different people saying, "No, this is how you do it. This is how you do it." I mean, show us do it you know and then we yeah. have conversation about this so we can actually put the science and make it go further instead of actually fighting about um reconstructions and naming things you know? i think this is where the the psychology do you know the psychology courses would come in handy exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> i look at the, i mean uh, looking at the leaves for years to come I'll probably go crazy in isolation. <laughs> <laughs> that also seems, you know, a fun way to spend your time as well, too. Yeah. To, to you know, it's that image of just hunkering down and, and just like, you know, all of a sudden they start talking back to you, you know? Yeah, exactly. So long. <laughs> and it's so interesting, you know, uh, what you see in the field can sometimes be different from what you see in the lab. So in the there's certain features that you capture. And because the thing is, you you are working and you are rushing because of time. 
you know, you're not necessarily there for, let's say, uh, the longest days. You may, you probably have like a week or so in the field and you have to do as much as possible because unlike other, um, other fields where you just walk around, like the, the vertebrate people can live a site where they find bones and then come back and it's exposed. With us, the sediment actually crumbles and you lose a lot of plants, you know, because because it's, it's weathering, you know, the the rocks will crumble. And by the time you come back, um, your site is totally different, you know. Oh. So you look at a, uh, you look at something. If it's interesting, we share. You know, we take photographs and stuff. But most of the time, you're excavating because of time. And then by the time you go, you get into the lab and you have to catalog and do a whole lot of things. That's when you actually have time to go through everything very slowly. The process itself of excavating is slow because you're trying to keep the part and counterparts together, and also you're working through layers it's not like you're taking um a hammer and you're hitting the rock and it just you know spreads all over because that would damage the specimens so we work layer by layer <laughs> so and trying to get as much information as possible and as complete specimens as possible oh wow i didn't think of it like that before that's so fascinating i just have a couple more questions left this has been such oh, sure. a to chat with you <laughs> I had, I had a listener throw out a question I thought was really, really interesting. And uh, this guy, Jeremiah, he, he asked, you know, paleontology has the T-Rex. And, I, you know, I kind of think, you mm -hmm. know, the megafauna, the celebrity of yeah. that, you know, of the dinosaurs. I guess what is what what do you like? Is, is there something like that for ancient plants? I think it also that depends on the time period as well. So in different time periods, you have different plants that are dominant. But I think the one thing that a lot of people know is a ginkgo. So a ginkgo plant, uh, I mean, is known as a living fossil. It was there millions of years ago. And it also is, uh, it has surviving, um, you know, relatives now. So that's cool. famous things. And I'm sure a lot of people know of the petrified forest national park uh which has a lot of uh horsetail fossils so i i would think a ginkgo is the most popular you know but i also i mean i'm i'm partial i'd say glossopterus if you in gondwana and <laughs> you know my my last question we touched a little bit on just again i love the you know everyone should have psychology and a little entrepreneur and finance and stuff like that. But, you know, what advice would you give somebody who wants to get into paleobotany in 2020 and what challenges uh, might they face? Okay. So if you want to get into paleobotany, it's not a problem. Most of the time, most of the people have, do not actually have a background in uh, paleobotany or paleosciences. So they come from different fields and they join the field like at a later, at a later time. Oh like I did, um, it's quite it's quite easy to transition from your old field to the new one, you know, and it's also helped me because I have a taxonomic background. So I came into um, paleobotany and the project that I'm, um, I'm actually doing has a lot of taxonomy. So that's helped. The one thing that I feel is a is a is a huge problem in paleobotany. Um, I'm talking. Well, it's actually a huge problem everywhere is um, the lack of funding, how paleo sciences 
in terms of botany is not viewed as uh, an aggressive science, like, for example, studying um, dinosaurs, orthorapsids, or hominids, you know, because they get a lot of publicity, you know. And um, so I, I think if you're in this for money in terms of any science, uh, then it's, it's, it's not the right thing uh, to do. It's more of a what can I con contribute and what legacy am I going to leave behind? For example, in South Africa, they, it's, it's getting diverse now, but it was not as diverse a couple of years ago and um still we still need a lot of phd black uh paleo science uh, graduates in south africa and um it's not an easy field so uh just like any science it's not easy it takes time and you need to be interested you need to be able to ask questions and obviously there's the whole concept of being discriminated against particularly yeah. a person of color if you're black and uh, I mean, we face that on a daily basis and you find that there's a whole lot of um, patriarchy as well, because I mean, yeah. the world is mostly dominated by white older males and getting in as a new generation, it's, uh, it's quite difficult because that's not, it's always been a boys club. So now you have all these um, females, genders, um, all these different people that are coming into the field, it also has a lot of, you know, implications in terms of personalities clashing and um, beliefs and views that are different. So I think a lot of people just need to be aware of all of those things, but at the same time, persevere and uh, know that they're contributing a lot to the science by actually doing paleobotany. And also, science communication is very important, <laughs> and they need to be bright in whichever corner they are. They need to be shining stars wherever they are. You know, some of my listeners are interested in getting into the sciences. It seems like just following you on Twitter and following those communities, it seems much. It seems much more encouraging to me. It feels mm. like if I were, you know, if I were a young kid and, and getting to be on Twitter with all these yeah. cool scientists sharing their knowledge and sharing their experiences it seems so much more it seems more hopeful to me yeah it's very helpful uh it's it's so interesting because i have i'm following a lot of people who are brilliant and you know who i look up to at the same time and um who i view as being pioneers um in their fields and uh who are you know very good and helpful in terms of science and giving advice but I feel to, uh, social media can be very superficial at, at times mm -hmm. because most of the people would interact with you, you know, very nicely um, in social media because, I mean, it's a platform where everyone can see the communication. Whereas privately, it's a different situation, you know, huh. um, where people are totally different. So I've, I've, I've seen that a lot in social media. I mean, I'm just, I, I haven't experienced that too much, but I've, I've seen it quite a lot, particularly with some of the people that I've known who are in my field, who I know personally and who I know, like, who I know, you know, uh, how they are and how they treat people and individuals. Uh, but 
it's a totally they're totally different people in I mean <laughs> media. And also I mean like students need to be very careful of that. When you're choosing a supervisor, you need to be very um careful and you investigate everything about the supervisor, including talking to the old students. Uh, so you can get a feel of whether you'll be able to fit into that lab and uh, be able to um, work in that environment. Because uh, as much as the work is a lot and it's challenging, you do not want to be facing um, mental health um, issues in a toxic environment. So it's, um, yeah, that's that's another thing. That's really great advice. Because it's easy to say, come to my lab, come to my lab, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, giving out a whole lot of advice. But in person, the person is a horrible individual. <laughs> oh, no. So, um, so we just need to be very careful. That's all I can say. No, that, yeah. No, that's great. But very great interesting advice. thing. And I'm, and I'm sure some of your listeners uh, will agree with me on this because, I mean, you find people that you've been trying to contact for years. And then you f you see them on social media. You ask the same question. It's easy for them to actually answer, but they'll never answer your emails. No. <laughs> you know, uh, or or they're very rude to you. You know, uh, in your emails and stuff. So, but just um, yeah, people need to be careful. No, that's that's great advice. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, this is this will just be a fun last one. But yeah. Are plant fossils or have you worked with plant fossils that have ever been discovered inside the body of a, you know, eaten by another animal or something like that? No, I haven't. Um, uh, but we have a gut content and that was and that insect was actually feeding on pollen, you know, and what was um, we know that the plant that was very diverse during that time was Glossopteris and it's actually found within some of the fructifications that um like the mats of fructifications that we actually work on. So that's so cool. Yeah. So there's there's that um there's that with uh, with that content. But I mean uh in terms of what I've been working with and stuff, no we haven't like necessarily <laughs> found. But I mean there've been mammoths that have been found with um with with food in their in their stomachs, you know, from a very long time ago. But that's more recent, um, you know, recent fossilization and mummification. So yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you know, as a plant detective, trying to put together food that's or you know, uh, plants that have been chewed on is probably mm -hmm. e even more uh, uh, frustrating, or you know, than you know, a, a you know, an impression of a plant by itself. <laughs> yeah, true. So for example, um. The site that I'm working on, Obert Pass, um, has a lot of insects and most of the leaves are heavily damaged. And so this is something that I'm going to be doing in my postdoc is to actually look at the relationships of plants and insects and uh, the different damage types that we're seeing. I I've already started with it, but I mean, um, it will be my main focus for my postdoc is to actually see plant-insect um, interactions and you're able, it's much easier when you actually do have a record of some of the fossils that are potential feeders of these plants um, and also having the plants um, available as well. And also uh, it helps when you actually have some insects that are, are also living now that are also in the fossil record that you can compare with, you know. Oh, cool. So, um, it's, it's, it's a whole lot. That's very exciting. That's really cool. 
Well, this has been such a blast chatting with you. I've learned so much and it's just so I really appreciate you taking the time to chat about your work and everything you're doing and and your journey and stuff like that. I really appreciate it. I'm uh, yeah, it's been so much fun. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm actually having fun, you know, and also just just thinking about the questions that you've asked me. Uh, You've engaged me a lot. And, um, you know, some of the things I had to think about. But I am really grateful that you actually invited me to come. And I hope um, they have questions for me. And um, I hope to hear from you again and also be featured again once I submit my thesis. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, well, where can people, where can people follow you, you know, on social media or just, you know, website or anything like that? Mm-hmm. So on Twitter, um, Udemisha. So it's at U-D-E-M-I-S-C-H-A. And then on uh, Instagram, um, the Paleobotany Queen. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.